All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the May 2021 uh, Major Mondays webinar. We're going to be going over third-party settlements in New York, uh, specifically with regard to consent and non-pro-tunk motions. There I am. Uh, as always, this is a live question and answer session, so uh, feel free to submit your questions. We'll get to them at the end. All right. Let's dive right in without further ado. So let's talk about where this requirement for a written consent comes from to begin with. Uh, Section 29.5 requires written approval by the carrier. Uh, the burden is on the claimant to get that uh, written approval, and the burden is on them to prove that they got it as well. Uh, a failure to obtain the carrier's consent before settling results in a waiver of future workers' comp benefits. Now that's big because that's gonna be one of our biggest leverage points. We're gonna get into that a little later. Um, but the claimant is not without remedy under Section 29.5 um, if the carrier uh, would not or did not give their consent. Uh, there is some options for the claimant still out there. So how rigid is that requirement? Um, well, we're going to go over a few specific examples of just how powerful this is. Uh, claimant basically needs our consent no matter what. Well, why is that? because the consent is required whenever settlement is, uh, whenever the settlement is less than the benefits provided by the workers' comp law, and any settlement is potentially less than the benefits provided by the workers' comp law, uh, as every uh, carrier unfortunately knows. Uh, there's a lovely case out there from the second department in 2015. Uh, I just put the name of it there for you, this DiGiacomo case, um, but that's the one that has that language that any settlement at all uh, is potentially less than what is provided for under the workers' comp law. So this requirement for a consent to settle applies in basically every context. So let's go through some examples. Uh, denied case, you know, uh, employer-employee relationship issues or, uh, you know, whether the accident arose out of the course of employment issues, any of our, you know, normal uh, defenses. Do they still need our consent? Yes, they do. Uh, settlement for 100% of the policy limits from the third-party carrier. So basically, they can't do any better than this. Still need our consent? Yes, they do. Uh, we haven't paid anything yet. We don't actually have a lien. Still need our consent? Sure do. Uh, No-fault carve-out. Uh, there's a couple webinars out there on that, but uh, you guys know about the $50,000 carve-out from motor vehicle accident cases. So we haven't paid over 50K, which means we're not getting reimbursed and technically we don't have offset rights yet. Consent still required. You guessed it, the answer is yes. Uh, there are cases out there on every single one of these topics that says that our consent is still required. So don't let a third party attorney tell you, I'm just doing this as a formality. I don't actually need to get your signature. Uh, well, they do, unless we uh, go forward with what we're gonna talk about under section 29.5. So I wanted to talk for a second about the power of this consent agreement, just how useful this can actually be. Uh, this is one of the most useful tools we have. Why? Because it's one of the few contexts where we, we get to call the shots. So we can memorialize how our reimbursement is calculated. Spoiler alert, it is a great idea to do that. Lay out the cost of litigation calculation under uh, Kelly, what the costs and disbursements are, what the attorney's fee are, is, what the total percentage is. Uh, definitely spell that out in the consent agreement. We can specify how it is to be paid. Uh, we personally like to demand that payment be issued within 15 days of third-party counsel's receipt of the settlement proceeds. Uh, put that right in the agreement. This way we're not you know, languishing in purgatory for them to finally issue our uh, Section 29 reimbursement check. 
uh, we can agree to how future offset rights are applied. Uh, I put the citation here for this one because uh, this is arguably the biggest aspect of this. Uh, this matter of Stenson decision from 2011, the third department, basically how the parties agree future offset rights are to be applied controls with regard to those offset rights. So everyone knows we have to deal with uh, the Burns case, right? Where we're paying out the cost of litigation percentage. Um, well, not if, not if you agree to a dollar for dollar offset, uh, and you'd be surprised how many attorneys are actually agreeable with that if they don't really have any skin in the game. Uh, we can take a complete holiday from payments until we exhaust the claimant's third party settlement proceeds. Um, now this goes for both indemnity and medical. When I say this, I mean uh, specifying how our future rights are to be applied. So you spell in there exactly how indemnity is to be uh, offset against going forward. Um, and you can act under the law, the gross amount of the indemnity has to be deducted from our credit. So let's say we're paying 300 on a $900 weekly payment. Unfortunately, uh, 600, the amount we saved, isn't what comes off the credit, 900 is. And there's all kinds of board panel decisions out there on that. But we can specify exactly how that works and put all of that in the agreement. More importantly, we can specify exactly how future medical treatment works. So um, there's this uh, case out there, a uh, matter of Franciscan uh, health management. It's from uh, the board panel. Um, but basically, it says that the proper thing to do in this instance is for the carrier to file a CA.1B uh, if they get this um, bill when they had agreed to an offset. The claimant is responsible for filing or for paying for the treatment out of pocket. Then they submit the request for reimbursement to the carrier, after which you either pay at the burns rate or if you reserved a dollar for dollar offset, you don't. Um, so spelling out how future medical is to be addressed is actually very 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 useful uh and i see a lot of times just a reservation of future offset rights uh and you're uh losing out on something if you don't specify exactly how that's going to be applied so the importance of getting the consent right this is not something to um mess around with uh, we talked about how powerful it is and how useful it is um well you got to get the language perfect right uh, any ambiguities are going to be construed in favor of the claimant. So I'll give you the perfect example here, the one you see all the time. Carrier reserves the right to take a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset. Both parties reserve burns rights. Sounds great, right? You reserve the right to take an offset against future payments. You reserve burns right. Everything's good. Uh, well, burns specifically says that you're paying at, you know, the cost of litigation rate going forward. So when you say on one hand, I reserve the right to a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset, and then you say, I reserve Burns rights. Well, those are two conflicting terms actually. And so what the board panel and every law judge on earth is going to say is you don't get the dollar for dollar offset, you get the Burns right. Why? Because any ambiguities are construed in favor of the claimant. Um, so failure to explicitly reserve any of your uh, future rights equals a waiver of those rights. And there's a bunch of cases out there. Um, Brisson versus County of Onondaga is actually one from the New York uh, Court of Appeals. Um, sometimes the carrier pays more than their fair share under burns because the consent does not specify. So under burns, you're responsible for your share of cost of litigation, right? Well, the moment your payments equal or exceed what the claimant's actual cost of litigation was, you know, their costs and disbursements and the attorney's fees from the third party action, you're not contributing to anything anymore. At that point, you start taking a dollar for dollar offset. So if this is not specified in the agreement, for instance, you know, 
the carrier reserves the right to take a dollar for dollar offset. At the moment, the total amount of burns payments equal the claimant's uh, actual third-party litigation costs. Uh, sometimes you'll end up continuing to pay at the burns rate when you should have gone to the dollar for dollar offset at this point. Again, something you can put in the consent agreement and get it all hammered out right from the get-go. Um, you can navigate your rights in a motor vehicle accident case, and I'm referencing that 50K carve-out again. Uh, you know, you might say in there, well, the carrier uh, does not have any offset rights until they've paid over $50,000. Well, that's just not true. Uh, the $50,000 carve-out applies to benefits that are paid in lieu of first-party benefits. First-party benefits are up to $2,000 per month for indemnity for not more than three years, and necessary medical treatment provided within the first year, it was uh, readily ascertainable that future medical treatment would be required. So if you're paying over $2,000 per month, whether or not in indemnity, whether or not you've paid over $50,000, you have offset rights against any amount in excess of $2,000 per month. Same thing, if you're paying more than three years after the date of loss, even if you haven't paid 50K yet, uh, say the claimant gets a permanency classification after limited treatment and it's three years into the case, you have offset rights. You don't have to pay $50,000 first. So you can specify all of this in the consent agreement. And the way we sort of like to word it is the carrier reserves the right, you know, credit and offset rights or reimbursement rights on any amounts which are not paid in lieu of first party benefits as described in Article 51 and Section 291A. So you can navigate that difficult motor vehicle carve-out issue directly in your consent agreement. Um, you have to be clear about any waiver of rights. So going back to the first example we had here where any ambiguities are construed in favor of the claimant, it's actually a good idea to get the claimant to waive burns if possible. Um, now, every uh, attorney on earth is gonna get their hackles up when they see claimant waives anything. Um, but again, you'll get the odd attorney that will agree to it simply because they just don't have any skin in the game, attorneys fee-wise, or maybe the case is winding down. They may sign off on it, um, and you're going to want the claimant to actually waive their rights under Burns. Otherwise, they're entitled to those Burns rights. That's what applies under the law. So uh, you have to be very, very clear in your consent agreement, or else it will come back to bite you. All right. Um, Christian Cisan, uh, host of the Lois Law Firm Third Fridays podcast, um, pokes fun at me for having favorite, favorite cases. Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite, favorite cases. Um, so a word on Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service. So this is a third department decision for 2014. So it says the credit and offset rights uh, for the carrier begin when specified in the consent agreement. So you can apply your rights as of the date of issuance of the consent agreement. Whether or not everyone signed it yet, and by the way, we do require their signatures, we don't just send a letter, we require a notarized signature from the claimant and a signature from their attorney, so that if anyone says, I don't know what's happening here, why is the carrier not giving me money? Well, you get to produce that to the board and say, your attorney had the chance to explain it to you and you agreed to this. So uh, we call it a consent agreement, not a consent letter. Uh, we want them to sign off on it. So you can apply um, your rights as the date of issuance of consent. Uh, what does this do for you? Well, it avoids changing the reimbursement and the uh, actual total burns payments. So if you think about it, um, let's say you're ready to consent to a third party settlement and you have a section 29 reimbursement and you do the whole cost of litigation calculation and you know what your number is, right? Uh, 
but then there's actually a delay between when you give the consent and when the third party settlement actually ends up happening. During that time period, you continue to pay benefits. Well, now, theoretically, the claimant's getting a double recovery unless some provision is made for those benefits that are paid in the interim. You should either be getting reimbursed for them uh, via Section 29 reimbursement, or you should have offset rights on them from the get-go. So what's beautiful about this Williams versus Lloyd Gunther elevator service case um, is you can lock in, so to speak, the Section 29 reimbursement amount and say that the carrier is going to begin applying the burns rate immediately take your credit immediately uh, or apply your uh, dollar for dollar offset immediately. Avoid changing the total amount of burns payments due uh, and also um, you know, avoid the issue of the changing section 29 reimbursement. Most useful context for this, the global settlement. The global settlement is you know, where we waive all our part of the lien uh, in exchange for the claimant's agreement to a full and final section 32. Uh, you know, Maybe we fund a portion of it with a lien waiver well, this is great because you get to say what your total lien is, what your reimbursement amount is, and then you lock it in place. Um, and what's crazy about this is you, um, can, you can halt benefits without a Section 32 waiver agreement. Um, this is because the board's jurisdiction is limited to interpreting a third-party agreement. Uh, the actual jurisdiction lies with the um, New York Supreme Court that the third-party action is in. So uh, whatever you agree to, the board is just limited to interpreting it. They can't change it. And so if you agree to a dollar for dollar offset pending approval of a Section 32 agreement so that everything stays in place, you can even specify that the claimant agrees to be responsible for interim medical treatment while the 32 is pending. Now, this is way out of bounds, you would think, because you can't waive the right to compensation outside of a Section 32 agreement. It's literally in the law. Well, this is the one situation where you can kind of get away with it, with a third-party settlement. So uh, this goes back to just how powerful this issue really is and why we're doing a webinar on it. So we're going to talk about just some random um, consent issues here. Um, so turns out your consent can be implied um, if the workers' comp carrier is the same as the third-party liability carrier. Uh, it depends on the facts and what the board's findings on that issue are. Um, courts have previously held that oral consent can be found based on the facts, um, but there's recent decisions that make it clear that formal written consent is almost always required. Uh, the law basically says it's got to be written consent, um, and this requirement to get your consent includes if the claimant is going to voluntarily abandon their case or discontinue their third-party action. It's not just if the action is settling. If they're going to step away from it or discontinue it, they need your consent because theoretically your subrogation rights under section 29.2 are impacted by any decision they make. So what happens if we don't consent? We'll get into the uh, 29.5 and the non-pro-tunk motions briefly. So why wouldn't we consent? Well, sometimes the timing is wrong, right? We have a section 32 pending. We want to make sure that that goes through before we consent to the third party settlement. You know, it's just neater and we want to know our reimbursement amount. Maybe we're withholding our consent as leverage, um, or maybe third-party counsel's being a little squirrely about something. Maybe we think that he doesn't have $30,000 in costs and disbursements for a case that was never filed, um, but we're not getting a closing statement. Or one of the biggest contexts, maybe the workers' compensation claim hasn't even happened yet, uh, and that there are instances where the third-party action will settle first, and then the claimant will end up filing for comp. Well, they never would have gotten our consent in that instance. 
So section 29.5 actually gives them uh, remedies for this, and there's two of them. There's the compromise order, which you know would be over our objection in theory if we're opposing the settlement, um, or posthumous approval, you know, doing it afterwards via non-pro-tunk motion. Um, this is either or under the law. There's no requirement to try and get our consent first. Um, now, no attorney is going to incur the litigation costs of a motion for a compromise order when they could just get you to issue a written consent. Practically, nobody's that belligerent. Um, but just know that you know this is an option that the claimant has. So the compromise order, uh, AKA the cram down motion, um, I'm not gonna go through each of these specifically, um, but just note uh, the reason I have this whole big block of text here is because all of that is required under section 29.5 to have that compromise order approved. It's literally written out in the statute what they need to have a valid uh, petition for a compromise order. And you'll see um, they have to include the itemization of damages, essentially, and they need the physicians and the medical expenses, periods of disability, their total wage loss, uh, terms of the attorney retainer, the proposed settlement, claimant's approval, uh, whether they made a prior application. One of the biggest things that's required is um, these attorney affidavits, as we just described, and a physician's affidavit. And how many times have you seen uh, a claimant apply for approval of a third-party settlement and include an affidavit from their physician. Uh, spoiler alert, none of them do. And that's a good way to get that um, motion kicked right out of the gate. Um, the contents of the attorney and physician affidavit are also specifically laid out in the statute. Uh, they need to do notice of motion under the CPLR, so they have to give you a chance to submit affidavits and be heard by the court. Um, but just note the courts will sometimes let them get away with satisfactory compliance. You know, they hit three out of five elements, maybe that's good enough to approve the settlement. So the non-pro-tunk motion we talked about is doing this afterwards, this 29.5 compromise order, but essentially retroactively. Non-pro-tunk, uh, Latin for now for then, uh, means the settlement happened and counsel uh, wants to avoid a waiver of their client's workers' comp benefits, or, you know, like we discussed earlier, the comp claim happened to be filed later. Uh, approval has to be sought within three months of the settlement, um, but this doesn't apply when the settlement is not during trial. So if litigation was never filed and there's just this negotiation going on with the adverse carrier, uh, this three-month time limit doesn't apply. Uh, the NUG-PRO-TUNC motion is still subject to the requirements of Section 29.5, um, but depending on the timeliness, they might have to satisfy some additional criteria. If the court approval is not sought within three months uh, of the date of the settlement, the claimant has to show that the settlement is reasonable, uh, that the delay in uh, getting the delay in filing for the non-pro-tunk motion was, you know, not on the part of the claimant's neglect or any of the claimant's fault, uh, and lack of any prejudice to the carrier. Um, what's the good news here? In either instance, the Section 29.5 um, compromise order or the non-pro-tunk motion, uh, we retain our rights. The court is, uh, quote unquote, without authority. That language is literally in several cases to fix it any other way. So your worst case scenario is you're gonna get your burns rights and your reimbursement rights. The court can't take that away from you and never let a third party attorney, third party attorney tell you, consent or I'm gonna quash your lien because that's not actually a thing. All right, let's get to the uh, live question and answer portion. See if anyone had some inquiries for us. Looks like we might have uh question here are these slides available for future reference so 
uh, yes, we actually record all of the webinars and um, we uh, publish them on our website. So uh, if you want to send me a, an email, uh, cmajor at loisllc.com, um, spelled exactly how you think, uh, I'll be happy to email you the link to get access to the webinar archive. Let's see if we have any other questions here. Nope, I think we are good. So sorry again for the technical difficulties earlier, everyone, and uh, I hope you'll join us next month for an exciting topic, uh, workers' comp exclusivity uh, and coverage issues such as employers' liability uh, and when that might be triggered. So that's on June 14th. Hope to see you then. Thanks, everybody.